you are listening to episode 28 of Dave's Daredevil podcast in which Matt Murdock goes to work for the Kingpin, Daredevil finds out why Wilson Fisk is more than meets the eye, and the New York crime families will never be the same. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. On this show, I read and examine stories about Marvel's Man Without Fear, Daredevil. This week is no exception, as we take a look at Daredevil number 171, the June 1981 issue, and part of the Frank Miller read-through that I've been doing. With this issue, the book went back to a monthly schedule, which would immediately make us believe that this was due to rising sales. That's absolutely true, but it's also true in part that Daredevil was put on a bi-monthly schedule due to lackluster sales. But there's more to it than that. In an interview with ManWithoutFear.com, Jim Shooter talked about the pecking order of the books. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four were in the first string of books, so they got high-profile creative teams. At that time, Daredevil was considered a second-string book, along with Captain America. But there was a third string, and that was where the X-Men ranked. Think about that. The X-Men were considered third tier. Now, that shouldn't really be any shock, because we are talking about the mid-70s here. And the X-Men were kind of in the early stages of being rebooted. Chris Claremont had not turned it into the juggernaut, pun intended, that it would become through the 80s. And then X-Men would then become bi-monthly until issue 112 in May of 1978, not too far before Daredevil. Now, sure, the X-Men were catapulted into a realm of success a bit quicker than Daredevil, but... I mean, we're talking about Claremont and Byrne issues. These are comic book gold. But it's important to stress what I'm saying here. Daredevil was not considered an unsuccessful book. But the bi-monthly came from a lurch in the writing staff and, of course, the same market crash that caused the DC implosion. Now, for those of you that don't know, the DC explosion was this massive expansion in titles from DC to increase their market share. But that ended badly. Around the time that Daredevil went bi-monthly with issue 147, a major blizzard had crippled the distribution of comics. And there was also a recession. Recession means lower sales and cutbacks as well as layoffs. So DC ended up canceling a lot of their titles. All of the industry was affected, just not as noticeably as DC. Over at Marvel, since Daredevil was still in the mid-range of books, rather than cancel it, the book went bi-monthly. And of course, with the layoffs, there weren't that many... That wasn't that much creative staff to put on the book as well, so it was kind of a struggle to get somebody in that spot. But it was running really smoothly on the bi-monthly, which, you know, it seemed like the book was barely holding its own. That's not true. The book was actually relatively healthy. And then we get this flux in creative teams before McKenzie and Miller came aboard. I mean, it was kind of a train wreck. We had good stories, bad stories, but here we started seeing the book get a consistent creative team, a creative voice. And of course, that was in time with a slight upturn to the market. And of course, with Miller, there was good buzz on Daredevil. And plus, the shift in the mood was right what the public wanted, apparently. So Daredevil actually ended up escalating itself to first-string status. And here we are with Daredevil kind of arriving in the big time. 
I mean, for the first time, Daredevil is looked at as something more than a Spider-Man knockoff and coming into his own. And this week's issue is the turning point. Unfortunately, we get this cover for issue 171. Uh, we have a black background, just a plain black background, but Daredevil is kicking in the air at Kingpin. No, that's really it. That's the whole cover. Daredevil's doing a flying kick and hitting Kingpin, and Kingpin looks pissed. And we're told by the text that one minute from now, Dee Dee will wish he'd stayed in hiding. Now, this cover is just plain. It's unexciting. Last month, we had this epic Eisner-looking cover. Before that, we had this hardcore bullseye cover, not to mention the electric cover. It's like this string of great, recognizable, beautiful covers, and suddenly we hit this wall. And you can't even say art quality makes up for it, because the art quality is choppy. It looks like, to give you an idea, mid-90s comic book fill-in. Now, granted, the motion lines in blue look okay, but it's just so generic, so plain. There's nothing stand out about it at all. So we have this moment where Daredevil's finally really reaching a higher level of awareness for the fans, a higher level of sales, and we get this lackluster cover. Now, this is simply a hypothesis, but perhaps the bi-monthly to monthly switch caused some problems with the cover. Oh, we have to put a cover in here. Frank puts together a really quick, easy cover to kind of get his footing in the new monthly schedule. But I also think I don't like this cover because it's tainted for me by Daredevil number 202, which kind of had the same concept. Black background, Daredevil fighting a bad guy. In that, it was Micah Sin. And no, I'm not going to subject you to the horrors and lacklusterness of Micah Sin. But definitely, we have seen far, far better covers from this creative team. As far as the issue itself, last week, we saw Wilson Fisk making a deal with the feds to turn over a set of files. These would incriminate every mob boss in New York. So, everything hit the fan. In retaliation, the crime families kidnapped Wilson Fisk's wife, so that brought him to New York. Crime families also hire a recently released, with a clean bill of health, mind you, bullseye to kill the kingpin when he arrived. And of course, when he arrived, well, he sent a decoy plane, which blowed up real good, killed most of the present as an opening salvo for his return to New York. So we are seeing a massively noticeable rise in the crime family presence... And also, a very noticeable mob war about to go down. And guess who's in the middle of it? Daredevil. And as for him, when he tried to accost Bullseye about taking the contract, Daredevil got knocked out of a high-rise window. Daredevil ended up falling into the back of a garbage truck, and that was the last we saw of him. So that's kind of where we're at as we go into issue 171. Before we dive in, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and then we will pick up the story from there. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales 
that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. And we are back, ready to dive into Daredevil number 171. The story is entitled In the Kingpin's Clutches. Written and penciled by Frank Miller. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Lettered by Joseph Rosen. And colored by Glennis Wayne. If you're wanting to take a look at this yourself, it is reprinted in Daredevil Gang War Trade Paperback. Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 Trade Paperback. The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover. And of course, the Marvel Digital and Marvel Digital Unlimited. And we open with Daredevil awakening in the back of the garbage truck where we left him last issue. He's dirty, he's dingy, but he's no worse for wear. As Daredevil heads home for a shower and some sleep, one of the mob enforcers is gunned down by the pissed-off Wilson Fisk returned to New York to find Vanessa. And the next day, Matt and Heather lounge at the park as Matt begins to plot a plan to get Fisk's files and make a proactive strike at the New York crime families. So I'm going to stop there very early in the story because I want to talk about some of these opening moments. Daredevil waking up in the back of the garbage truck. He mentions the smell of orange rinds and coffee grounds and, uh, well, makes me a little nauseous. So, well done. Uh, you'll note that the credits are on the round canisters. And these canisters actually look like, well, mutagen ooze containers. They're probably frozen orange juice cans, but, you know... We can make that connection whenever we want, because the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are huge, right? Right? But what I really want to comment on is the Kingpin, and the mob enforcer who's calling into his bosses, telling him, hey, the Kingpin screwed us over, and then he gets gunned down. Suddenly, this villain who was very... He's kind of cheesy in the Spider-Man. I mean, granted, he was a formidable foe. He was acceptable, but he wasn't dark. But suddenly we see this guy go to the Godfather. I mean, we're looking at guns being used. Not a cane, not hitting people with his belly. Guns and pure, straight up, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma action. That sets a tone. We know that this is not that same kingpin, which I kind of talked about at length last week, so I'm not going to retread that, just to kind of put a button on that point. Now... Heather and Matt are lounging at the park. It's all happy as Matt's kind of kind of gloomy, kind of in his own world. And Heather's like, oh, pay attention to me, Matt. Don't think about this huge mob war that's going to affect a bunch of other people. You selfish whore. I'm just not sure why this scene exists in the story. Outside of checking in on Heather, letting us know that that relationship is still going, much to our disdain. We have this dark, gritty escalation of a mob war. And then we have this happy, shiny day at the park. Which reminds me a lot of the Electra scenes. From that issue, 
But where those were juxtaposed against the current day, this is present, and it just feels completely out of place. Now, I do like the idea of Matt considering being more proactive, but I like the idea of thinking, if I get my hands on those, I can reduce the crime massively. I can strike a blow that Spider-Man can't match. I can totally do something that the Fantastic Four haven't been able to do, and he's not thinking of it in those terms. I am, but he's not. He's got ideas. Because if he can get the files, he can round them up. And not only can he do it, he can do it by the rules. He has the proof. He has everything to drag these people into court and make sure they don't plead their way out. But unfortunately, Heather is there and Heather is a distraction. But that's the story so far. Let's get back in here to another segment and get deep into this mob war because, well, folks, things are about to get real. The crime bosses plot to trade Vanessa for Fisk's files and then kill him. So they send Bullseye to deliver the message to the big guy. Meanwhile, Daredevil slips into his Matches Malone-style disguise and heads to Josie's bar. There, he states he wants to be taken to Fisk, as Josie herself complains about the broken window from last week. Get your drinks ready, folks. A fight breaks out, and two people, two people, get thrown through the window of Josie's bar. So, I'm going to count that as one, because it's one window. So raise your glasses for a toast on one, two, three, salut! Anyway, Turk being... Turk decides to take this stranger to the kingpin after he owns the entire bar. So Turk and Grotto, his friend, lead Matt into an underground lair where Matt announces himself to be Shades and has a quick improvised audition that he aces by blocking the barrel of a gun with a pin. So just as Matt is welcomed aboard Kingpin's merry band of goons, one of the kingpin's sentries comes into the room and falls down. He delivers a message from Bullseye. The kingpin is to meet at a construction site on 9th and 40th, the next night at midnight. And then after delivering the message, the sentry croaks right in front of Matt, which of course angers Matt because, well, he just saved Bullseye a while back and this is kind of on him. Kingpin's right-hand man keeps prodding Fisk to take back the crime families, which irks Fisk. And Fisk shakes the guy, shakes the guy to make sure he gets the message that he's not interested in that. Meanwhile, at the storefront law firm, the secretary, Becky, fends off many calls for the absent Matt and Foggy. When Foggy does arrive, he's in a funk and basically only sulks at his desk. Alright, as this issue is kind of heating up quickly, let's stop and talk about it up to this point. We get the unnamed, undescribed, nondescript criminal syndicate sitting in this dark, dingy, shapeless void. I mean, it's basically a large shadow. The only thing that breaks it up are those blinds, the rectangles. Other than that, it's pretty much just a smoke-filled room, kind of like a dingy version of the Security Council from the Avengers movie. But Bullseye sitting here watching this as he's being sent to send a, a message to Kingpin, which doesn't sit well with him, and he's starting to realize how much power the Kingpin has over the city. And he's starting to wonder if he's working for the right team. I mean, he's looking at more prestige rather than money, but... He gets paid to kill either way, so it's a win-win. So he's starting to reconsider his position on this employment opportunity. Uh, moving into where Daredevil heads for the bar, we have a really, really cool first panel with the Brooklyn Bridge in the background and Daredevil sort of catapulting his way, I guess, to it. I mean, let's be honest. Matt Murdock and Frank Miller are both in a love affair with New York. Frank presents it visually. Matt experiences it in entirely different ways. But it definitely comes across, and it's definitely gorgeous. Gorgeous work. I mean, kind of a murky night mist, I guess is the best way to put it. And then he slips into his Matches Malone-style outfit. I don't know what I would call it. I mean, if you're going to do a pastiche, make it right. I mean, call yourself Frank Flair or Freddie Fire. Don't call yourself Shades. 
Josie, when we get to the bar, she seems to have gotten a little bit more weathered than the last time we saw her. Like, well, she's been road hard and put away wet. And I know she's supposed to be the sort of mother hen to the underworld bar Denzians. So she's seen some stuff. She's had a rough life. But man, that escalated fast. And it occurs to me when Daredevil sits at the bar and says, I'm looking for a woman named Vanessa. And you could pretty much hear a record scratch in Josie's bar. Apparently nothing is secret in the underworld. I mean, this is before we had 24-hour webcams or things like that to tell us what's going on. So how does the underworld know anything about what's going on with the kingpin? At least on this level. Even Josie's like, huh? Now on that note, Josie's bar feels more alive in this issue than we've seen it before. I mean, we have arm wrestling customers, laughter, there's smoke rising up to the ceiling. You can hear the creaky hardwood floors. I mean, you can almost reach out and grab this place. So it's becoming more and more of a real thing. And I like that a lot. That it's kind of a personality in itself, which is what retroactively it is to us. But it's cool to see it develop slowly and add these layers and layers of detail. And of course, the window is broken, which we've done our shot. And I counted it as one because it's one window. So just to let you know, this window was first broken in issue 160. So with this issue, we have three window breaks so far. I'm keeping track. And that's twice in two issues. So we are well on our way to developing a trend. And I don't know who can get mad at a straight-up Smokey and the Bandit, Dukes of Hazzard-style bar fight. Really, even if this wasn't a superhero comic, I would pay attention to this. Especially with Matt just cleaning things up. We're talking about a room full of heavies, grunts, what have you. And Matt is pretty effortlessly knocking them down. And then, of course, Turk plays right into Matt's plan, despite Grotto trying to say, uh, wasn't he asking for this initially? Because, you know, Matt's sitting there saying, I want to be taken to the kingpin. And most of these people are fighting him to stop him from doing that. And Turk's like, well, you just own the bar. I'm going to take you to the kingpin. Grotto, his friend, is kind of giving him this, uh, are you, are you dumb look? And they take them to this underground lair. Now, this is where the Godfather style ends. And we kind of go back to a little bit of the comic book campiness. And Turk and Grotto take Matt through... This very visually cool, very Eisner-infused scene of going through all these intricate pipes over the top of the panel, over the characters. So rather than just walking down a boring corridor, you have something visually that strikes your eye and kind of confuses it a little, but in a good way. It's, it's visual trickery that makes you think something more exciting is happening on the page. However, within that, we learn once again that Matt's just not the best at hiding his abilities. I mean, he's blindfolded, but he's navigating the sewers just fine because, well, vision's not something that he has to rely on. So way to hide that, Matt. Now, when Matt finally comes face-to-face with the Kingpin, and, and bear in mind, this is the first time they have been face-to-face. As intimidating as the Kingpin stature is for us to read visually, multiply that by 10 in radar sense. Kind of like the Hulk. The gimmick is that he's fearless because he's blind, but I'm sorry, seeing this huge bulky figure walking towards me and the way he's experiencing it would scare the willies out of me. Of course, that would have been pretty much thrown out the window through the audition because Kingpin, this massively paranoid, shrewd businessman slash criminal slash mastermind, basically just needs to know that you're a badass to be part of his group. And it's not very shrewd or secure, you know. Matt blocks a gun with a pen. And of course, he uses the name Shades. Really? But as for the Kingpin, Shades could easily be a spy. In fact, he is a spy. And really for what Matt has gone through so far, getting into the Kingpin's organization has been, well, effortless. Looking at this scene, I think about the cover again. And yes, I'm coming back to it. Granted, the cover depicts something that's coming up in the story, but in a lackluster way. 
Why not have a cover depicting Daredevil working for the Kingpin? That would definitely intrigue me. Or why not just have a fight in Josie's bar on the cover? Definitely something more exciting than I'm Daredevil, I'm going to kick the Kingpin. Boo, yeah. I think the kicker uh, for this part is when the sentry comes in and says, hey, Kingpin, meet at this time, at this place, and then dies by Bullseye's hand. That is on Matt. Matt's decision has already bitten him sooner rather than later. Of course, the implications are only going to get deeper from there, but yeah, you've got that right in front of you, and considering he's in a situation where he has to pretend to be calm, cool, and collected, Matt takes it pretty well. But he's definitely gritting his teeth. He's definitely regretting that decision. It's already bitten him right in the rear. So... Kingpin is kind of put in this position to go meet, and you have Lynch who's saying, hey, you should take over the crime families, you should be the Kingpin, you should be the guy. And he's pushing and pushing and pushing and starting to realize that Lynch is going to regret his attitude. I promise you that. And then we get this quick check-in at the storefront law firm where Becky's fielding calls. I haven't talked much about Becky, the wheelchair-bound secretary. I'm going to look at her a little bit more in-depth in a few episodes, but considering Matt has gone from playing in the park to playing Daredevil, she's a bit put upon. And then Foggy, well, Foggy's kind of a wreck right now. Why? We don't know. Because that subplot is inching forward ever so slowly. We will get to it, I promise you that, but it's going to be just a few more issues out. And yes, before we jump back in the story, I did check the 9th Avenue, 40th Street location for the construction site. Most of the buildings there on either side look like they were built well before 1984. They would have been standing at that time. There wouldn't have been really a construction site at this place. But you know what? It's the Marvel Universe. You can account for changes. So this is one of those strikeouts where I thought I was going to find something cool geographically and nothing. So let's limp back from that and take a look at the next section of the story. In the Kingpin's lair, Matt finds the Kingpin's vault, where the files are going to be stored. His main mission, his main focus. The vault is blocked by this massive, impossibly heavy door. Matt uses all of his strength and resolve, but manages to open it and snoops around inside the deep darkness. As he's snooping around, Fisk himself shows up. And of course, as usual, as has been the standard, Fisk is pissed. But instead of finding shades inside the vault, Fisk is surprised to find Daredevil. A fight begins in the darkness. Normally, the darkness would give Hornhead an advantage. However, hitting Fisk is like hitting a brick wall. And despite his many blows, Daredevil has absolutely no effect. Fisk, however, only throws one punch, and this punch lays Daredevil out, leaving the man without fear unconscious on the ground. Now, I'm going to stop here for a moment and talk about this vault and about this scene, because a huge door, not locked, just a huge door that only Fisk can open. Now, this immediately makes me think of Superman's Fortress of Solitude, an entrance that's not technically locked, but the only person who can really open it up would be, well, Superman. The design of this vault simply shows how egotistical Fisk is. He's not wrong, mind you. It's just so cocky to have this huge vault with all of your secrets, and the only thing you have to do is pull it open. Again, not wrong, but it does show some nice bit of character work on Fisk, even if that wasn't the intent. By the time Matt gets this thing open, which is a grueling page of just him yanking, and, and you can tell, I mean, it's, it's painful to try to open this door, but the handle is coated in sweat. This scene very much reminded me of Spider-Man lifting Doc Ock's machine off of him. I mean, it's a full page of him yanking. And then when he's done, he says, my hands feel as big as basketballs, which hurts just to think about. Miller also gives us a really good flashlight effect, kind of a Batman 66 movie opening credit thing as the flashlight scans the ground, scans the wall, finds the clothes. But Wilson, they're doing great things with light switches. 
Just flip on the light, you'll see Daredevil. Speaking of that, this is the first time these two have come face to face. The first time. So this is a very linchpin moment. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. If we're looking at the chronology from Man Without Fear, wouldn't they have met? No, they didn't meet in that. They never came face to face. Kingpin even points this out, that Daredevil has been, and I quote, a minor interference in several of my lesser enterprises, not worthy of my personal attention. Because, well, Kingpin's been dealing with Spider-Man and things of that nature. I mean, for such a big moment for this comic, and of course there's no way to have known how big this would have been, this was just a story at the time, but for this moment we get this Tom and Jerry fight. Because Daredevil's throwing blow after blow after blow on Fisk. And they're solid blows. If this was a normal person, they would be knocked down, no doubt. But he's just going at him like a cartoon animal, and then Kingpin just pulls a Giffen de Mateus Batman and lays Daredevil out in one punch. Admittedly, the punch itself is incredible, because we have the sound effects of wood. And I don't think that sells how it happens in our head, because I just hear this sickening crunch. The visual is more effective than the sound effect, because, I mean, he's pretty much crushing Daredevil's face with his big meaty fist, and it's almost more nauseating than the orange rinds and coffee ground at the beginning. But Daredevil is knocked the F out. So, for those that were questioning if Kingpin's going to be a badass, here's your answer. Yeah. Without a doubt, one punch knocks Daredevil down after Daredevil's throwing some of his best at him. But, let's get back and finish up this story. Fisk makes it to the meeting at the construction site, which we don't need Admiral Akbar to tell us is a trap, complete with somebody stationed with a mortar cannon, and Bullseye's watching from a wrecking ball with a rifle. So he's like Miley Cyrus in assassin mode. Vanessa is tied to a girder. She's in sight, but she's just out of reach. Things move quickly. Fisk offers the briefcase, and this briefcase holds a surprise. Instead of documents, it has a device that emits a supersonic sound, incapacitating everyone in the area. As Fisk makes his way to Vanessa, one of the mob soldiers remains conscious because he was just out of range of the device, and he haphazardly fires the mortar cannon. The cannon's charge hits the steel structure and brings the girders down on top of Fisk and Vanessa. Fisk, however, rises from the wreckage and frantically searches for his wife, but she is nowhere to be seen. Lynch rushes from the car and urges Fisk to leave before the cops arrive, and there's nothing left to be done for Vanessa. Fisk complies. There's nothing left but to make them pay. The kingpin must make them pay. As for Daredevil, Turk and his friend Grotto are tasked with putting Daredevil out of commission. Turk decides to be creative. Instead of shooting Daredevil, the man without fear is stuffed into the water main and sent down the current. And that is where the issue ends, with Daredevil immersed, tied up, helpless to save himself inside the water pipes. Alright, so I already made an Admiral Akbar joke, so there goes that. Half of my material is gone. The briefcase with the piercing noise at first bothered me, but it gave me a little bit of pause for thought. Because at first I'm like, well, that's not very Godfatherish. We were going on a very dark path of crime, more real world. But then I thought about it differently. I looked at it from the other side of the perspective, and I think this is how Sonny Corleone would handle business in the Marvel Universe. If you're the head of a crime family in the Marvel Universe, you've got people like Doctor Doom out there to compete with. So yeah, you're going to come up with things like piercing screams, and it's actually quite clever. Now the thing that got me the most about this segment was after the girders fall, you see this look of stark horror on the Kingpin's face, and it's a slow burn as he realizes what's happened to his wife, because he's climbing out of the muck, kind of coming aware of himself because he's probably knocked silly, and his eyes just go huge. His pupils are tiny. It is... More than effective. And remember, this is the Kingpin's good part of himself. This is like his soul. This is like Davy Jones's heart. And it's just been trampled on. Permanently, it seems. 
And then, of course, Lynch is like, we gotta go, we gotta go. You should be the kingpin, by the way, but we gotta go. Damn it, Lynch, just back off the man. His wife just died, and you're trying to push him to be a kingpin. Stop being the smithers of the underworld, and just let kingpin mourn for a moment. Now, granted, Lynch is effective. He does convince him to be the kingpin, which may or may not have been the plan all along. At once, this strange scene, which happens very quickly, there's not a lot to it. Briefcase, people go down, mortar-fired girders. It's a very overcomplicated way to re-establish the kingpin. However, it works. We have a, the building of motivation. We have the change in demeanor. And by God, we're on board with that. And of course, I have to say, Turk, you dumbass. I mean, just shoot him. Don't be creative, because he'll come back and he will beat you solid, time and time again. However, that does lead to a really good Daredevil cliffhanger. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of another issue of Daredevil. Now, next week, the ensuing gang war really rises up a notch. Daredevil fights Bullseye again, and the Kingpin wins. Just not in the way you might think. So get ready for riveting action and a climax unlike anything seen in the pages of Daredevil. That is in seven days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Here is